1 John chapter 5, the very end of that book. As you remember last week, we departed a little bit from our study in Revelation for a few weeks as we look at this issue of holiness, what has God has called us to in being holy as he is holy. And so that today, my message is about the greatest threat to our holiness, what stands in our way. And we're going to read from 1 John chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, the very end of chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, I'm sorry, 18 through 21. So if you found that, follow along with me as we read 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 18. The Bible says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God. And the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's take a minute and pray. And then we'll look at our message this morning. Father, we just ask for your presence and your guidance now as we look into your word. I pray that you would remove the distractions from our minds and from our eyes. I pray that you would help us to focus and to be attentive, to open our minds to receive what you have for us today from your word. Lord, we need to hear it. We need to be taught. We are weak and sinful people. We need as much help as we can get. And so we're looking for truth today to guide us along this path, to give us strength, to encourage us to keep going in the right direction. So we ask for your spirit to do his work in us. Teach us your word. And Lord, just fill me with your spirit. Give me strength of voice and body and mind. Give me wisdom and the words to speak so that we might hear the word proclaimed from you, not just a man, but that you will speak to us. And so we want you to receive the glory and praise during this time. May you have the preeminence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage, um, we see the issue of holiness. It doesn't use the word, but at the beginning of the passage, in verse 18, it talks about us knowing something. And it says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because earlier in his book, he says, he that is in Christ is without sin. Now, it doesn't mean that people who are saved will never sin. What it means is that their lives are different. Before Christ, we lived in a pattern of sin. That was who we were. Everything we did was sin. And the reason we know that is because Romans 3 tells us we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't give God the glory for everything we do. That's the basis of our sin. Okay? So here it says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. If we're truly saved, then our lives should be about glorifying God, about letting him do his work, accomplishing his purpose, um, achieving his goals in and through us. That's what a Christian's life is all about. And to be apart from sin, there's your definition of holiness. As God is holy, he's perfect in everything. That means all of his attributes are perfect, complete. They couldn't be any better. 
Part of that is he is completely without sin. He is totally separate from sin. It's not part of his being. It's not part of his actions. It's not part of anything that he does. And that's what he's called us to, to remove ourselves or to let him remove us from sin in our lives. Okay, So that's what we're talking about here in verse 18. But he says, uh, we know then, and this is a, a thing we all know because that's what the Bible teaches, that he who is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. What does that word keep mean? It means to guard, to protect. To protect against what? The next phrase, and that wicked one touches him not. Now, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us as believers that we're supposed to put on the armor of God. Okay? Why? So that we may stand in the evil day, so that we can protect ourselves against the wiles of the devil. And it lists all the parts of that armor, faith and prayer and hope. Okay, all of those things. But it's to protect ourselves from the temptation to sin. Now, as far as believers are concerned, we can look at this phrase and we say, okay, well, it says I'm not going to sin. It says that we're born of God and therefore I'll keep myself. It says he keeps himself. It's an interesting phrase because theology-wise, I thought it was the Holy Spirit that kept us. He does. He keeps us in Christ. We've been sealed through the Holy Spirit in Christ, so we can't lose that salvation if we're truly saved. But this word guard or protect means there's something I have to do in this process. And I have to protect myself against something. Okay? And in verse 19, we know that we are of God. If this is our mindset, he says, if we keep ourselves, if we're concerned about protecting ourselves against sin then this is the mindset we have. So we know that we are of God. And in the contrast, the whole world lieth in wickedness. So we're to protect ourselves against wickedness. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, that we are in him that is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So he gives us the purpose here. He kind of sums up the book of 1 John right here at the end. He wants us to know that we're saved. He wants us to know what a believer's life looks like. He wants us to know that if we're in Christ, we won't live in sin. That's not our desire anymore. It won't be the pattern of our life. And he wants us to know that if we're in Christ, we're never going to lose that. We're sealed in him so the whole purpose of the book of John, or 1 John, is to tell us, here's how you know you can be saved. Now, I'm not going to read the whole, first, whole book of 1 John. We don't have time for that today. But if you go through the book of 1 John, there is a lot that John says about one particular subject. And he basically says, I want you to know that you're saved, and if you're saved, you will love God above everything else. That's the mark of a believer. You will love God above everything else. Now, why are we talking about this today in the context of holiness? Because our love for God determines where we will end up in that journey. 
If we do not love God the way that we're supposed to love God, then we will never be on that path to holiness. Okay? So the whole book of 1 John tells us, if you're a believer, you can know that because of your love for God. And, by the way, if you love God, then you'll love other people. Without exception. There's no... Buddy, that doesn't fall into that category. Remember, we're supposed to love God first, and then we're supposed to love others. And Jesus defined that in different places in his teaching. He said, well, who are you supposed to love? We're supposed to love our brother, obviously. We're supposed to love our neighbor. He taught us that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But then he also told us we're supposed to love our enemies. So who's left out of that? Nobody. And First John tells us, if we love God, we will love other people. And if we don't love other people, then we can't say we love God. Because the love of God does not abide in us. In fact, he says, if you say you love God but don't love other people, then you're a liar. And the truth of God is not in you. Okay, so he makes it very clear here. Loving God, our love for God, is the primary starting point. It is the primary characteristic of a true believer. And it's that love for God that will set us on the path to holiness. Okay? So there's my introduction. Now, my message comes from the last verse in verse 21. He ends this whole book about loving God, about believing in God, and about knowing you're saved with this phrase, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he throw that in on the end? And for a long time as I studied the Bible, I would read 1 John And I would look at that verse and go, man, it doesn't seem to fit. It's like, oh, love God, love God, love God, love God, love others, love others, love others. Keep yourself from idols. And in my mind, I directly went back to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, right? We know the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Okay, and we go through the commandments. But those are the two things that popped in my head. Don't worship idols. And it took me a while to put the two pieces together. Okay, well, if we worship idols, that means we don't love God. I get it. And that's what John's saying. He gives us the whole book about loving God. And he says, if you're going to love God, keep yourselves from idols. The problem is, in today's Christianity... We ignore not just loving God, but we ignore this idolatry. We ignore protecting ourselves against this idolatry. The trick and the lie of Satan that draws us back into what God saved us from in the first place. That's what idolatry is. And so Christians have idols. Now let's define this idolatry first of all, okay? Idolatry would be basically elevating anything to the place that God should occupy in our lives. Anything. It can be a job. It could be accumulation of wealth. It could be a hobby. It could be something we enjoy doing. It could be another person. It could be anything. Anything that takes the priority that God should have in our lives and puts that in its place that becomes an idol. And so in that perspective then, all of us are guilty. And that's why John addresses all of us and says, flee idolatry. 
Keep yourselves from idols. Don't let something take God's place in your life. I want to spend the rest of my message just sharing with you some of the things that take God's place in the lives of Christians. And it's not little statues made out of gold or silver that we bow down to, okay? We look at that in false religions, and we go, oh, yeah, I would never do that. And yet we do in other ways. The first idol of Christians, or what I will call the first Christian idol, is worship of the world. The first way we worship the world is materialism. Now, we studied a few weeks ago the church at Laodicea. And remember, Christ defined or described the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And he said um, in verse 15, I know the works that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou were cold or hot. So then, thou, because thou art lukewarm... There's a great word, a lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. There's most Christian lives right there. God has blessed me. Thank you, God, for all this stuff. Thank you, God, for a peaceful and comfortable life. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Okay, that, That's how we think. We may not say that out loud, but that is the condition of our heart because that's the way humans think. In fact, that's the way the world thinks. They may not say, thank you, God, but it's a focus on the outward materialistic stuff. Everything that's out here, everything that I have accumulated, everything that I'm working for, everything that's pressing down on me from the outside world, and I make that a priority over God. And so in a sense, we worship the world. Now, the love of money is part of that, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 tells us that it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay, But here's where we go wrong in, in particularly in this one, and I have to say I've been guilty of this in the past. It's not the attitude that, oh, I got to have more, I got to have more, I got to have more, and I'm filling my coffers and becoming richer and richer and richer, and I've got my retirement accounts overflowing, and I've got the savings account overflowing, and I've got the cars, and I've got all the rest of it. Okay, yes, that can become the idol. But here's the other end of that, which is still idolatry. When we're struggling, when we have very little And everything we do and how we live is to gain that next dollar because we need it so badly. And our focus is on the next dollar instead of the one who can provide it for us. We complain about our circumstance in those situations. And God says, be thankful for everything. Be thankful in everything. Look to me. I'm the one who's going to provide. And so it doesn't matter how much we have. It's this constant thinking about wealth, about money, about paying the bills, about supporting my family, about paying the mortgage, about whatever that has to do with money. We make that a God, and it motivates us in how we live and what our, what our priorities are. Okay, In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it talks about covetousness. It, it's, it, Colossians 3 talks about us going back into the sins, the covetousness, the lasciviousness, all the things that appeal to our flesh, 
Okay? The things that God does not want us to have. That's the basis of covetousness. Wanting things that God doesn't want us to have. Now, I'm going to say something very interesting, but you've got to hear me all the way through. God doesn't want you to have money if that money is going to make you forget about him. And that's the danger. Okay? And many times, even when we look to God and we say, God, thank you, we need, we need this, and you've provided, we're thankful for the gift of the money, but not thankful for the one who provided necessarily. And we make money an idol in that way. So we think like the world. We worship the world. We worship the world's thinking. Okay? We can also adopt worldly philosophy into our practices, even in our Christian life, and maybe even into our theology. And I've seen people do this. They take worldly thinking and humanistic philosophy, and then they mix it with a little bit of Bible truth and then throw it out there. Okay? You want some examples of this? Open Facebook. It'll take you five minutes to find it. People put it out there all the time. I don't go on Facebook very often, but my wife and I, I forget when it was, we were sitting there looking at Facebook. She was looking at hers, I was looking at mine, and I kept saying to her, man, that is so unbiblical. She'd go, what is it? And I'd read it to her. And then five minutes later, I'd go, oh, I can't believe they put that up there. She'd say, what is it? And I'd, oh, and I'd read it. Because we mixed all the philosophy of humanism into our thinking, and then we take these little kernels of truth from God and mix it in with worldly wisdom and say, hey, look at this. I'm going to present this wisdom to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, keep yourselves unspotted from the world. It's not just in our actions. It's in our thinking. And we talked about that last week, how our conscience, our thinking has to be programmed with the truth. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, it's talking not just about physical things, but about the world's system, about the world's philosophy, everything that has to do with ungodliness in our culture. We can't adopt any of that and look up to it as good, and then throw it in with our worship or throw it in with our biblical advice or whatever because it's not from God. Unspotted from the world, even in our thinking. You know, most of the world's cults are based on elements of truth roven around a worldly philosophy. Let me give you a phrase that is at the base of most false religions. You have within you the divine spark. Now, we may look at that and go, it's not that bad, right? God made us in his image. So there's a divine spark in me. In worldly philosophy and in false religions, they use that phrase to mean that divine spark means you have a divine element within you. And therefore, you can become God. Every false religion teaches that. You are your own God, or you will become your own God. We have to be very careful about the philosophy that we just accept as biblical because it sounds religious. And we've been duped by a lot of false teaching because 
we don't know the word of God well enough to recognize error when it shows up. You can't mix truth and error and come out with a good result. And it doesn't take much error to contaminate the truth. I've done, I did this in our church in Michigan for an illustration. I had a cup of water and a pitcher of water. And I poured the pitcher of water into the cup, and it was a clear cup that everybody could see it was water. And I said, does everybody think that's okay to drink? And I took a sip, and I put it back down. I said, okay, so would you drink that? He said, yeah. And then I took one drop of drain cleaner and put it in there. I said, okay, now, there's only one drop of drain cleaner in that. Who wants to drink this now? <laughs> Why? Because that's poison. Why would you drink poison? See the point? It only takes one drop, and it destroys the whole thing. You don't drink it because it's mostly truth, but it has, oh, you know, there's elements that, eh, well, whatever. No. We have adopted the world's philosophy. We have accepted it into our life, but we cannot mix God's truth with the world's wisdom, or what they call the world's wisdom. It doesn't work. It's either pure truth or it's error. There's not an in-between here. So holiness in our lives cannot be compromised. Now, I told you last week, in, to, in order for us to pursue holiness, our minds, our conscience, everything about us must be programmed with the truth of God. That means removing the error. And sometimes that's difficult because we've got our pet projects, our pet sayings, our pet truth, our pet whatever, and we don't want to let go of them. But God has to take them out of us. Because if we keep those things, and what we're saying is, God, I'm not going to let this go because I really like this thinking, I really like this guy, this philosopher, this pastor, whatever, even though they may be teaching not all truth, you know, they have some good things to say. That's dangerous. Because now we've elevated the world's thinking over God's truth. So first, we can make worship of the world, the world's philosophy, the world's thinking an idol. Second, we worship men. We worship men or people. The first way we worship men is by patterning my life after that person. Right? I had a friend growing up in high school. He had an older brother who was a great athlete. He was musical. He did all these things that were amazing. And his younger brother was my friend. He didn't do all that stuff. He liked math. He was a nerd like me. Okay? But he used to say to me all the time, man, I wish I could be like him. Man, I wish I could do that like him. And the danger in that is now we want to become like a person. Now, if you want a person to idolize, Jesus Christ, right? He was the perfect person. How many of you are perfect? Nobody. You sure? What if I ask a second time? Come on, think about it. Nobody. Okay. You're going to admit fault here. So how many of you would want your children or other people that you have influence over to become exactly like you? Good. Because... God doesn't want us to become like other people. God wants us to become like him. And if we look at other people and we say, oh, that's what I want to be. Now, we've elevated someone else above God in our lives. 
The only person we should look at is Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this controversy that was happening in the church. And people were saying, well, I got saved under Paul's ministry. I got saved under Apollos' ministry. And then others were saying, well, I believed in Jesus Christ directly. I didn't need a pastor or somebody to tell me the truth. And they were proud because of who led them to Christ or what camp they were in or what pastor they were following. And Paul says, forget all this. You don't follow a person, you follow Christ. When you follow a person, they're going to lead you into error because they're not perfect. At the transfiguration of Christ in Matthew chapter 17, Christ took several of his disciples up to the top of the mount, and as Christ was lifted up, his face and his robes glowed white, and the voice of God came down and said, This is my beloved son, hear him. And Peter was standing by, the disciples fell on their face, and Peter says, we should set up three temples right here. One for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. We should do this right here. And God said, no, no, that's not what we're doing here. And in verse 8 of that chapter, it, is, it says, the disciples fell on their faces, and when they looked up, they saw no man save Jesus only. That's our philosophy as a Christian, to see no man save Jesus only. He's the only one we can look to. We can't set people up as our model, as our idol, as those people that we want to be like. Because as a believer, we are to be like Christ, alone, period. And so I don't care how great a pastor is, how wonderful people are in your life, that's wonderful that God has given you those people in your life to encourage you, to help you, but don't pattern your life after a person. It has to be patterned after Christ. I saw no man save Jesus only. That should be our prayer. Second, we can worship men this way, by patterning our doctrine and application of Scripture after someone else's teaching. Now, I appreciate the fact that I've gotten many compliments and many positive comments about my teaching. <clears throat> that encourages me. Okay? If, if I stood in the back and people would tell the truth and say, man, that stunk today. You really blew that one, huh? Okay? Because that's how I feel sometimes. I go and I tell, ask my wife. I, we get in the car and I'm like, man, did I bungle that one? Okay? But people, God can still use it to bless people. Okay, so it's not about the pastor. But here's my, my caution to you. As much as you enjoy my preaching, as much as you may get out of it, please do not accept the things that I say from this pulpit or otherwise as the absolute truth. Find it in God's word. I appreciate it when people come to me and they say, hey, you said this, but it doesn't seem to match with what the Bible teaches here. And then we can have that discussion. And there have been a couple times in my ministry where I've had to say, you know what? I misspoke. I, I said that wrong. Or I was completely wrong on that. We need to look at the Bible and see what God says because that's what's most important. Do not follow a man's teaching as gospel truth. The Bible tells us, let, every, let God be true and every man a liar. That's how we approach theology. That's how we approach our understanding of Scripture. Don't take my word for it just because I said it. 
You know, what if I came up here and said, well, you know, I was reading in the Bible in this very obscure passage, it tells that, that God, when God made the moon, he made it out of green cheese. Now, let me explain that to you and how I got that. You know, and I could spend an hour telling you how I'm convinced that God showed us in his word through reading between the lines and manipulating things, God made the moon out of green cheese. And then from here, you go on out and you say, I never realized that. Wow, it is made of green cheese. Okay, if you do that, I'm wrong and you're wrong. You don't accept the word of a pastor even as absolute truth. You have to let the Holy Spirit guide you. You have to be in the word of God. So that when somebody says something like that, you can go, I don't think that's in here. And then you go back to Genesis chapter 1. It says, God spoke and made the world. And it says, God spoke and made the sun, the moon, and the stars. I don't think there's anything about green cheese there. Okay? So we have to be careful about holding up man's teaching as our model for everything that we're going to believe. And unfortunately, I have known people, I still know people, who get all of their theology from a devotional book or from a commentary or from somebody they watch on TV, and they never read the Bible themselves. That is dangerous. Because we have idolized now the person instead of the God who gave us his word. We have become accustomed to a culture of convenience, okay? We want everything easy and fast. There's a restaurant right across the street that is proof of that. They wouldn't be in business if we didn't want convenience. Because when it comes to quality, not so much, okay? It's filling, it's fast, it's easy. That's what it comes down to. And that's the way we treat our theology. As long as I get what I want and it's easy to get and I don't have to work too hard. Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. Work hard. Dig. Get into the word. All through Proverbs you see references to having to dig for hid treasure. Okay, that's not an easy thing. That takes work. But because of convenience, we'd rather just let somebody else tell us what the Bible says in a convenient and easy way, and then we'll just, ah, we'll accept that. And that is why we have so many people delusioned about what the truth is and why so many churches are so messed up in how they practice and what they believe. Because some guy came along and told them something that sounded interesting, and they never bothered to check it out themselves. We cannot make people even a pastor, our source for absolute truth. Okay? Can't happen. That is idolatry. So people, we can make people an idol. Third, we can make worship of self. I can make myself an idol. You can make yourself an idol. And the first way you make yourself an idol is by elevating your own understanding and reasoning above the wisdom of God. Now here's a common phrase that I hate. Everybody knows. Right? Everybody knows this is true. No, everybody doesn't know that. Okay, there's no way to know exactly what is true unless God has given it to us. 
So if you're referring to everybody knows that God loves us and sent his son to die on the cross, that's truth, but guess what? Everybody doesn't know that. So when you start a phrase and say, and especially when you're trying to convince somebody of something, and you say, yeah, but everybody knows, okay, you've just lost me, and you just went off the rails of God's word. Because you can't use your own understanding and your own thinking to define what you believe. The Bible tells us that. Okay, we all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with, what's the word? All your heart. All, right? That nothing left out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then what? Lean not on your own understanding. I think that's pretty clear, right? Trust God to be true. He's got the answers. Don't trust yourself and your own thinking. Now, it goes on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In how many of your ways? All your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Not, okay, God, I've been doing this on my own, and now there's a fork in the road. Which way do I need to go? And when we do that, because we think we've got this, God, I've got it figured out, don't worry about me. Then we get to a problem, we go, okay, which way, God, am I supposed to go? And actually, what God wanted us to do was turn way back there, but we missed it because we weren't going to him. And that's how we approach everything in life. As believers, many times, we just trust that I got this figured out. Now, God had to teach me this lesson. Because for a long time, I had this attitude, I can do this. And it wasn't so much in my mind of a self-confidence. It was, you know, God has given me talents and abilities. God has given me an understanding of things. He's given me a gift to teach. And I just approached problems like, I can do this. What does the Bible say? I can't do this without Christ. And God had to put me in a situation where I was literally at the bottom going, I don't know what to do anymore. And God said, okay, stop trying to do it and start trusting me. Because I was relying on my own understanding. So we worship self. We have to remember that God alone is truth. See, we keep coming back to this premise because this is the most important thing. God has to be the standard of truth for everything in our lives, for all of us. He is absolute truth. I went to a seminar years ago, and the speaker was talking about God's truth, and he said there's four levels of truth. I've never forgotten this. He said there's four levels of truth. First level of truth is what we call absolute truth. That's God's word. What God says, that's absolute truth, okay? The second level of truth is what we call doctrine. That's man's interpretation of God's truth. Now, some things we can see pretty clearly. Other things, eh, not so much. We try to figure them out. We put them down into a doctrine. We say, this is what we believe, okay? For instance, the Trinity. Somebody explained to me the Trinity. Oh, it's God, you know, three persons in one God. All right, give me an example. We, well, you know, the egg. That's a very poor example, okay? But the Bible tells us the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are one God, Genesis chapter 1. Let us create man in our own image, okay? But they're three distinct persons. 
can't explain that. There's nothing on earth that we can say, oh, here's a perfect example of that. But we have to accept it because that's what God says. So it has nothing to do with what we understand, but we put it into a doctrine. So that's level number two. So we have God's absolute truth, number one. Number two is doctrine. Number three, then, we take those doctrines and those things we understand about the Bible, and then we form convictions or standards in our life, okay? Because this is true, therefore, this means this for my life. That's the third level, my standards or convictions. Now, we could have a discussion, I'm not going to go there today, but we could say, okay, is it a sin to drink alcohol? Some people have a conviction against that. Other people do not. It's not absolutely forbidden in Scripture, But different people have different convictions. Why? Because that's what God has impressed upon them, or that's what they've accepted as the truth for their lives. But that's the third level, is our conviction. Now, the fourth level is our application. And here is the real test. How many of you know God's word enough in basic things and then obey it every day in doing those things exactly the way God wants you to? No hands. We don't have any perfect Christians here. What's going on with this church? Come on. All right. I I didn't raise my hand either. Our application is that fourth level of truth, and we live that every day. Now, here's the problem. Our kids and those people that we have influence care more about what? What we live and not so much what we say, right? And so our application is already three steps removed from God's absolute truth, and that becomes absolute truth for the next generation. Now, propagate that system through four or five generations, and you understand why our world is the way it is. Because for generations, the children have been looking at people's application, which is very inconsistent, with the actual convictions, and absolutely inconsistent with God's truth. And they take that as their truth, and then that's their absolute truth. Then they form their doctrines off of our actions. Then their convictions come from those doctrines, and then they kind of live up to their convictions. And then their children are six steps removed, and their children are nine steps removed. And you can see how we can get absolutely corrupt churches as well as a society. And that's why it's so important to stay as close to God's truth and not my own thinking or even my own, what I think the application should be as the absolutes, because God's truth is all that matters. And we are to stay as close to that as possible. And if somebody comes to us for advice or wants some, some uh, you know, encouragement or whatever, we don't go start with, well, I think, wrong approach. Our approach should be, what does God say? God says this. Now, I know I'm not perfect in that, but this is what God wants us to do. So we propagate, in a way, our own theology and how we live. We make ourselves God. Because we don't care so much about God's truth. We care about what we think and what we want to do. So we put ourselves in the place of God as far as truth is concerned. 
The second way we can worship self is by self-propagation of acceptable Christian character. Now, I talked a little bit about this last week. I'm going to keep this point short, but I want you to get the point. This is called Phariseeism. I set my standards, I live according to them, I judge everybody else according to them. That's what the Pharisees did. That makes me a good Christian in many people's minds. And I lived that way for almost 30 years. I thought I was the only right one. I thought I had all of the things figured out. My life was the best Christian life that anybody could have. And I judged everybody else according to that. And that was absolutely wrong. And God had to show me that. But if we self-propagate an acceptable Christian life for ourselves because we've defined our own convictions and our own standards, and as long as we live up to those, God will look at us and go, oh, what a good person. We have just made ourselves an idol to ourselves because now we've defined the standard rather than looking at God's standard. And our Christian life becomes a facade to convince other people and ourselves that we're spiritual and we're serving God and we're good Christians. And when, in fact, we are actually leaning on salvation by works, which is a false teaching. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, but I want to dispel one myth right here that many Christians have. Your holiness does not depend on how you live. Now, that may shake some people. The truth is, how you live depends on your holiness. You cannot generate holiness by trying to be holy. You generate holiness by submitting to God, and he will make you holy, okay? And again, we'll discuss that next week more. But just because we see ourselves as a holy person does not make us holy. And in fact, if we see ourselves as a holy person, then we have just created an idol for ourselves in ourselves. So we, ourselves, can be an idol. That's the third idol for Christians. The fourth idol is a worship of a false god. Now, I'm not talking about Buddha or all of these other gods that people over in foreign countries worship. I'm talking about the God of heaven. You go, wait, wait, how can that be a false god? Because we know about God. We know he exists. Okay? Okay? And the Bible says the devils believe and tremble. They know there's a God. They know who he is. They know what he is. So that has nothing to do with it. Okay? But in our minds, we create a God of our own making. And it happens to come out in phrases like this. Well, I don't see how a loving God could allow such bad things to happen in this world. How about, I don't see how a just God could allow anything good to happen to us? See, we want to characterize God by one or two of his traits. We don't want to look at him in his entirety. And so we create a God that's all loving, a God that wants to give us all the best things in life. And then we live that way. And that's who we worship. And we worship like this. God, I need this. Please help me. Give it to me. Thank you. 
And that's the only time we recognize him. God is not just a God of love. He is love. But the Bible says even in love, he chastises us. That means hard times, trials, tests, pain, suffering. God allows those. That is his plan for us. Why? To make us holy. We can't create a God of our own. We have to accept God as he is, as he presents himself in the Bible. And unfortunately, many Christians have conformed God to our image rather than us being conformed to his image. We want God to be like me. We want God to think like me. Because if God thinks like me, then everything I do is fine. Right? I'm justified. Because God thinks like me, I think like him. Hey, you know, my life is good. We can't ignore aspects of God's nature and character to avoid accountability to him. God demands holiness. His holiness means he's perfect in all of his attributes, including justice, including mercy, including judgment, and wrath. And we have to take into account those things when we look at God. And we've seen that in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ in Revelation is not a mild, humble little baby in a manger or even a mild, humble servant washing his disciples' feet. He is shown in Revelation chapter 1 as the almighty judge of the earth who is going to come and destroy sin and all of those who are against him. That's who he is. And so we can't create a God of our own thinking to conform to the Christianity of our own making so that we can live a Christian life on my own terms. That's idolatry. So we paint ourselves a picture of Christ the way we want him to be. And then that's the God we worship. And our lives, our prayer, our music shows that. It's like, you ever seen the illustration of a guy sitting on a donkey? He's got a fishing pole, and on the end of the fishing pole is a carrot, and he dangles it in front of the donkey's nose, and the donkey walks forward trying to get the carrot, right? And the donkey doesn't realize. He's too stupid to realize. He'll never get there, so he keeps going after the carrot until the guy wants him to stop, and then he pulls the carrot away. That's us. Only we've created our own carrot, and then we're walking toward that carrot going nowhere, That's what happens when we create our own God. And our own God determines our method and means of worship. Because we'll approach God in worship then and say, well, whatever we think God will accept is fine. Whatever I enjoy giving to God, that's okay. God will accept that because God accepts us. I'm in Christ now, so it doesn't matter. Okay, that didn't work out well for Cain. Remember God came to Cain and Abel and he said he wanted to sacrifice and Abel brought the, the lamb and sacrificed the lamb and Cain brought vegetables and dumped them on the altar and said, there you go. And God said, sorry Cain, that's not acceptable. Wrong offering, wrong attitude. And Cain got angry. Eventually killed his brother over it. The sons of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. His sons were Nadab and Abihu. Those were his first 
sons. They became priests, and God outlined all through Leviticus how the priests were supposed to operate in worship. And it seems like very early in their ministry, Nadab and Abihu came to offer incense to the Lord or to put fire on the altar. And the Bible says they offered strange fire to God. Didn't do it the way God told them to. And immediately the fire of God came out of the altar and consumed them. And Aaron stood there watching this. And God basically said, don't say a word. Just realize that this is the judgment of God and learn from it. Because you didn't offer acceptable worship. I can give you several examples other than that. Jeroboam, one of the kings of Israel, apparently had every intention of propagating the worship of God. You can read his story in Second Kings, um, 1 Kings chapter 12. But he didn't do it again according to the statutes of Moses. He did it his own way. The images were wrong. The place was wrong. The priesthood was wrong. He just did it however he wanted. See, right God, wrong method. It's not acceptable. King Ahaz, he kept the regular form of Israelite worship, but he had a false image that they were to worship instead of God. Right method, wrong God. And you can go on and on and on. And look at all of these cases of false worship or unacceptable worship because in their mind they had created an image of God that did not match up with who God really was. And the sin in each case originated from a wrong heart condition before the Lord. They wanted their own God on their terms, and it can't happen that way. In John chapter 4, verse 24, we're instructed to worship in spirit and in truth. We have to be giving our worship to the true God alone, not some made-up God in our mind, and we must worship him exactly as he has told us to, in truth and from our spirit in communion with his spirit. And just because we're happy and dancing around and waving our arms going, praise the Lord, that doesn't define it as worship. If our heart's not in it, it's not worship. And frankly, Every time you see in scripture where someone actually comes into the presence of God, they're not dancing around and cheering and waving their hands. They're falling on their face before God because they realize they're not worthy even to look at him. Now, all idolatry is ultimately an insertion of ourselves into the arena that belongs to God alone. That's what led to Lucifer's downfall, right? I want to be like God. I want to ascend to the Most High. Let me give you a test. Look at your list of sources of wisdom. Okay? I know you probably don't have it written down someplace you can pull it out and go, oh, Bible, that's first. Yep, okay. And then CBS News, NBC, CNN. Okay, yeah, we're good. Okay. If there's anything else on that list other than God, you're in, pro- you're in trouble. Okay, because you're saying basically is, yeah, yeah, God's important, but, you know, you have to have all this other stuff. No, we don't have to have all that other stuff. In order to be holy, we need God, period. God's wisdom alone is truth. Everything else is folly. And so that leaves no room for our own preferences, our own opinions, 
And when we look at this passage in 1 John where he says, keep yourselves from idols. If we consider anything else absolute truth for us, wisdom that we are going to live by, we are walking on thin ice. Now, I've used this example, and I'm going to finish up with this, but you've used this example. Does God care about what color socks you wear? Does God care about what shirt you put on? Let me ask you this question. Does the Bible say that he knows how many hairs are on your head? He keeps track of that, right? Does God clothe the flowers of the field? He told us that in Matthew. He takes care of the sparrow, right? Small little bird that we don't pay attention to half the time. So does God care what color socks you wear? I think he does. How can we never ask him? Because he doesn't really care about the little things. Really? If he doesn't care about the little things, who gets to define little? See, we've created a God in our minds that doesn't care about the little things. We only need him for the big things. And frankly, we've never had an answer about what color socks we should wear because we've never bothered to ask him. Now, I'm not going to say God's going to stand there at your drawer and a hand's going to come down and go, red ones. Okay? But we should have the attitude of at least acknowledging him in all our ways. See, the reason we don't think God cares about trivial matters like that is because we're so short of understanding of who he really is. And therefore, we are so far from being submissive to him and having the loving relationship that he wants us to have that we wouldn't recognize his voice even if he came down and told us. My wife and I do this every once in a while. She did it to me this morning, you know, getting ready for church. And I'm sure married couples, you understand this. She got the dress, she got the sweaters, you know, in front of the mirror and jewelry. And I'm, I mean, I'm impressed. She, and then she turns to me, she says, is this okay? Does that look right? Is it, does it look good? Sure, yeah, you look great, okay? Now, if I do, I don't do that. I'm going to tell you why, because there are days where I reach in, you know, we don't even turn the light on, just reach in, put a shirt on and a coat and tie, and I walk out, and my oldest daughter looks at me, she goes, you're wearing that? Okay, we care about what each other wears when we love them. Don't you think God cares too? See, idolatry is just a matter of choosing to keep control of different parts of our lives that we don't think God matters that much to God, rather than just give him everything. And the Christian life is about giving up everything. Christ said, he that keeps his life shall lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life, or if you lay down your life, you will keep it. Give it all to him. How do you keep your life? Give it all to God. You can't consider yourself as a source of wisdom, of strength, of any inherent goodness, or you risk making yourself an idol for yourself. So Christians have all kinds of idols. Now, I just mentioned four possibilities. It could be possessions. It could be people. Other people become more important to us than God. Okay, I've counseled married couples. They were having trouble because 
Their spouse was more important than God was to them. A job, a career, even a ministry can become an idol if we put it before what God wants for us in our lives. Okay? John warns us to flee idols here. This is the culmination of a book about loving God and loving others. Flee idols. Stop loving yourself is basically what he's saying. Stop being your own source of wisdom. Stop thinking you are the cream of the crop, that you're okay. You have to trust God in this. And even though John's warning to some people may seem out of place, it's a perfect ending to this book. We are to flee idolatry, flee our own thinking, flee our own desires, even flee relying on our own strength. Because as long as we hold on to whatever we think is worth holding on to, our hands will not be open to receive what God wants to give us. But it's in our wisdom that we think this is the most important stuff. And we miss God. I'm going to share with you this paragraph that was written by David Clarkson. He was a preacher back in the day. He says, when you're more careful and industrious to please others or yourself than to please God, to provide for yourself and your family rather than to serve God, to be more concerned with food, clothing, shelter than how you may honor and enjoy God, to make provision for the flesh to fulfill your own lusts rather than how to fulfill the will of God, to put more effort into promoting your own interests than the designs and plans of God, to be rich or great or respected of men than that God may be glorified in your life, to be more interested in how to get the things of this world than how to use them for God, to spend your time and effort seeking to advance your own prosperity while the cause of Christ is absent from your endeavors, to idolize the world, yourself, your wants, and your relations while the God of heaven is neglected in your life, to live and worship for the advancement of your own image than for the submission of your heart to God's spirit, then the worship and service due unto God alone, you are idolatrously dedicating to yourself, stealing from God what is rightfully his for the gain of nothing, but corruption and destruction. And that's what happens when we make idols. He goes on, he says, He that makes Christ his chief aim, if at length he finds him whom his soul loves, his heart is quieted and satisfied, whatever else he wants, whatever else he lose beside. Here's the truth. Most people don't want holiness because they don't want to love God Truly. And I've had people go, no, no, you don't understand. I do understand, because this is what the Bible teaches. We don't want to love God the way he wants us to love him, because we're afraid of what he's going to make us give up. Control, stuff, a spouse, children. It all belongs to God in the first place. He gets the choice on that. But if we're holding on to it with both hands, it's become an idol. We need to live our lives with one goal, with one purpose, one perspective, one reward. God alone. And if having God is not enough without anything else, then you need to really sit down and consider 
Am I truly saved? Because that's what salvation really is. Having God because nothing else matters. God should not be the highest priority in our lives. He should be the only priority in our lives. And until God is the only priority in your life, your idolatry is the greatest obstacle to your holiness. John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Father, we thank you that you have given us your truth. And sometimes it's hard for us to hear and apply in our lives because there's so many things that we enjoy that we want. And we know they're against your will, or maybe we don't know because we haven't bothered to find out. But Lord, I pray that you would help us all to let go of the idols that are keeping us from becoming holy as you've called us to be holy. Help us to submit ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves, to give up whatever it takes to be acceptable in your sight so that you can do your work in us and make us holy in the image of Christ. We know only you can do that. So I pray that you convict our hearts. Put your finger on things in our lives that we need to let go of. And don't quit bothering us about them until we do. So that you get the glory for all that's done and said. And we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 376 is our closing hymn, 376. Take time to be holy. First verse.